So we're going to start a mini-series within the series today. We're going to have two weeks uh, on Achan's sin. This is part one, which is God's correction. So the next two weeks, we'll dive into this fascinating story of Achan and his sin and the impact it had on Israel after they had defeated Jericho. And on the surface, it seems like this is a very sad, complicated, troubling story. I mean, the whole nation seems to suffer because of one guy's bad choice. Do you ever feel the pressure you might do that to your church? However, I think many people look at the story of Achan and they completely misunderstand what it's about. I believe this story about Achan and his sin is intended to be an encouragement to God's people. An assurance that our God keeps his promises. Have you ever heard someone say to you, if you're disobedient to God, God is going to withhold his blessings or withdraw his protection? Have you ever heard that? Many see the story of Achan as an example of how God will punish his children when they sin by letting them suffer. Have you ever felt that way? Like like God's obedience is bad enough that we're going to now lose blessings and protection. Is there like a way, like is is there a way to know, okay, if I stay on this side, I mean, I can be disobedient to like scale of one to six, but scale seven, no, no more blessings. What if I told you that if you are a child of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, God never withholds his blessings? What if I told you he actually never withholds his protection to those he has called out of darkness into light, no matter what you do? What if I told you that thinking that way reveals that you have a severe lack of understanding of what grace is all about in the first place? undeserved favor. What if I told you what you may think is God withholding blessing or protection is actually the complete opposite? Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Let's look at our passage today. But the people of Israel broke faith regarding the devoted things. If you remember, the devoted things were those few things that God said to keep, but it's going to be for the house of the Lord and no one's to take it into their own house. But the people of Israel broke faith regarding the devoted things, for Achan of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned. Now, I want you to, I put that in bold because I'm just going to give you a quick Hebrew lesson. I did some study on this. Did you know that those words actually can be translated, the face of God was displeased? In many modern versions, it says the anger of the Lord burned, but the word for anger actually means face or nose. And then burned means turned up. Or displeased. So it could be translated anger was burning, but it also could be the face of God was displeased with the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai near Beth Haven and said to them, Go up, spy out the land. The men spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, only send 2,000 to 3,000 men to attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. 
The hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothes and fell on their face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. They put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought us over the Jordan at all to let these Canaanites destroy us? For that we would have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Now all of a sudden they sound like the old Jewish people, don't they? Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel runs from their enemies? For the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, surround us and cut off, your, cut off our name from the earth. What will you do for your great name? He's really kind of giving it to God right here, isn't he? I love what the Lord says. He says, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have broken my covenant. I commanded them. They took some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and kept them for themselves. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turned and ran because they have become devoted for destruction. I will not be with you unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, he says it to him again. Get off the ground. Get up. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You won't defeat your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. You know, this, this passage has some interesting things that happen to it. Historically speaking, I want you to see that there is severe spiritual overconfidence among the people of Israel. First of all, I want you to know that I, the city of I, was kind of pitiful. So after crossing the Jordan, right, that was a pretty big event, this big victory over this massive fortress city of Jericho, Israel is brimming with confidence and, in fact, national pride. They see themselves as being on God's side, on the side of right. They crossed the Jordan. They were defeating kings and armies. And yes, God was the one that brought down the walls of Jericho, but the army is the one that went into the city into face-to-face combat and obliterated Jericho's army. And Joshua and Israel are so ready after this victory for the next challenge. And it is this tiny, under-fortified outpost called, called Ai, which is about 10 miles north of Jericho. It's on the road to the next city. So as the battle of Jericho is winding down, Joshua does the logical thing. He sends spies out to this little outpost, Ai. I, you know how I would describe the city of Ai? It'd be like one of those truck stops on I-75 between Sarasota and Tampa. I mean, you can get some snacks. You know, you could learn anything. The spies report that Ai is not well fortified. See, I relied on the fortress of Jericho for its protection and its support and its shield from invading armies. Nobody thought Jericho would fall, so I wasn't really protected. So the spies recommended Joshua, and this kind of makes sense. Look, we don't need to send all 600,000 of our troops. We just need to send like two to 3,000 troops, like half a percent. I mean, this would be a solid military strategy because you minimize the massive logistics that would be required to move an army of well over half a million people. I mean, it's a smaller fighting force, right? So you have less food you got to carry, less weapons, less supplies, less livestock, all those. But there's something missing in Israel's plans for I compared to their plans for Jericho. We'll get to that in a little bit. 
And we see in the story, the little city of Ai ends up being an embarrassing failure for Israel. Joshua and Israel had expected a very easy victory there. I mean, if God made Jericho's walls fall, this, this little city, I, this little truck stops a piece of cake. I is no match for the people of God. But Joshua did not know that there was a secret cancer brewing among the people of God. Question for you, have you ever felt certain that you knew what God wanted, whether for you or your country, and you were shocked when it didn't happen? That's what happens for Israel at I. And Israel's stunned. How could God let this happen? A handful of soldiers at the little truck stop called I has turned this massive army back. And Israel, it says, they're running in fear, chased down a hill, and they lose 36 men. So based on the incredible success at Jericho, certainly Israel should have been able to easily overrun this little roadside outpost. And Joshua's devastated. God, how could you let Israel be embarrassed by such a small force at Ai? God, why did you even go through all the trouble to bring us across the Jordan, make that whole display with the water and everything, just to allow us to be humiliated here at this little chariot stop? God, isn't this, isn't this embarrassing for you too? What are, going to pe- what are people going to say about your name? You let your people run in fear from I. You let us go defeated and embarrassed. But Joshua and most of Israel didn't know that Achan had directly disobeyed God and stole from, from himself those things that were supposed to be reserved for the house of the Lord. It's worth noting here that unlike Jericho, Israel moves against I without any instructions from God. We got this one, God. Perhaps Joshua assumed that the city of I would be so easy, they didn't need any Jericho-type instructions. You know, the church often underestimates the power of our enemy, don't we? Or in many respects, we fail to even correctly identify him in the first place. Sometimes we think things are enemies when they're not. Sometimes we think things are allies when they're enemies. In fact, we assume that everyone within the church is a follower of Jesus. By the way, that's a little sneak preview for next week. All right, that's the history. Look at the theology of this passage. What about God and what does he do? I want to talk about God's protection. God says to Joshua, get up and grow. So in the aftermath of I, Joshua and Israel, they're discouraged and they're reeling and they're confused and they're grieving and they're just wallowing in a deep pool of self-pity. And I love how God responds. It's not, oh, what's wrong, little Joshi? Why are you depressed? Why are you sad? It's going to be okay. Everything will be fine. That's not how God responds. He says, Joshua, stop your whining. Get off the ground. Israel has a big problem here. And now together, all of us together, we are going to fix it. So does this sequence of events that God allows this defeat, does it trouble you? I mean, this is all Achan's fault, isn't it? Does God seem harsh or even unfair? 
Why would God allow one person's sin to cause such widespread embarrassment? How does that make you feel, by the way, about what your responsibility is to your church? See, these are problems that we have to wrestle with in this text, but I do believe that we can see what it's really supposed to be. I want you to see that what God offers here is protection, not punishment. Proverbs chapter 3, 11 and 12, look at this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his correction or reproof. The Lord, lo- the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the, as the father, the son in whom he delights. So many... Many people, when they preach this, they see Israel's defeat at eye as a result of God withdrawing his blessing and protection as a result of vacant sin. I see it much differently. Yes, they lost 36 men, but that's like 1% of the force they brought. Some of those probably just died falling down the hill they were running. <laughs> I mean, from a human perspective, this incident seems like a defeat. But I believe what happened at I is another great example of God's love and God's grace for his people. Israel's defeat at I is, and listen carefully, his, their defeat at I is definitely not judgment. Do you know why I know that? We've seen what God's judgment looks like already, right? And it ain't that. This isn't divine judgment. That's reserved for the day of the Lord, and we study that in Revelation. It's a lot more graphic than 36 guys falling down a hill. It looks more like Jericho. (laughs) Complete devastation. That's what judgment looks like. Instead, this is God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love in action. See, judgment looks like the seventh trumpet in Revelation. But when you step back and you look at the bigger picture of what's going on in Israel at the Battle of Ai, we realize... You know, the con- had, it, had I not gone the way it did, the consequences could have been far more severe for Israel down the road. <clears throat> so you have to understand, Israel is in a war, not a battle, a war that is going to require for quite some time spiritual vigilance and preparation every day. Defeating I pales in comparison to the larger war that they are facing. And God, in fact, by doing this, God, in fact, was preventing further harm. Stopping the spread of harmful habits among his people. I don't believe God withheld his love or protection. I believe he was displaying it in powerful ways. In ways Israel couldn't probably comprehend at the time. So imagine with me, just imagine with me the ramifications here. If Achan's sin had gone unnoticed and he got away with it. Sooner or later he would have told some guys, hey look what I got from Jericho. Others would likely have been tempted to follow suit in other cities, in other towns. And as that sin among the people grew, how much heartache and pain and death might have befallen Israel if this sin had been allowed to proliferate. This practice, because we're human, this practice certainly would have spread like a cancer throughout the nation, resulting in pain and suffering and death that would far outweigh the 36 guys out of 3,000 who died at the city of Ai. See, God knows his people are prone to wander and stray. And in his love and care, what he does is he shepherds Israel back onto the right path, back into covenant with him. 
And through his divine wisdom, God would reveal to them, and we'll learn this next week, God would reveal hidden, not just sin, evil that was within his people before the situation got out of control. So that's the history and the theology. Just look at the personal section. What about you and us? And what are we supposed to do? I want to, he's not withholding his blessings and protection. He is pouring them out. This story isn't about God's judgment. It's not about God punishing his people or withholding blessings. On the contrary, it's a story showing that God will never, listen carefully, never permit anything, including our sin, to overtake his redeemed and pluck them out of his hand. It's what we call in theological circles, perseverance of the saints. It's a story that reveals another example of God expressing his profound, unconditional love for his people. It's a story of how God will take necessary to sanctify and prepare his people for the day of the Lord. You will be ready for that day if you are a follower of Jesus, I promise you. Because, you know, God's love is not superficial. God's love is not some sort of fair-weather affection based upon our religious performance. How does that sound like mercy? You ever have a dog and you reward the dog and you punish it? Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like you got a puppy or trying. Mercy isn't about getting grace biscuits. <laughs> As a reward. Or a rolled up newspaper when you're bad. Seeing God as one who withdraws his presence and protection when we fail or fall at any time, that doesn't reconcile with what Jesus said. Do you remember what he said when he told us to go into the land? What did he say? He promised no matter what happens, I will. See how that doesn't reconcile? God's punishing Israel. I will never leave your. No, they don't reconcile. Psalm 119, verse 71 and 75 is a great verse. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Says everyone, right, all the time, right? Don't we all say that? It's, oh, it's so great. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your, your statutes or your word or your truth. I know, O oh Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. See, what is our natural reaction when sin is exposed in your life? Well, our first, probably easiest way to respond is to ignore it. Until we can't, then we rationalize it. Until we can't, and then the next step is usually to do what Joshua and Israel did, wallow in self-pity and blame God. And like Joshua and Israel at I, do you often mistake God's loving correction as punishment or judgment for that year that we studied that beautiful book? What happened to Jericho, that's judgment. That's not correction. Don't mistake God's correction for judgment. Let me say it again. Follower of Jesus, don't mistake God's correction for judgment. God, listen to me, never withholds blessings from his children. And setbacks and trials or challenges that stem to his profound love for us. 
I love the metaphor of a shepherd in Psalm 23. What does he say? Your rod and your staff, the things he used to keep the sheep in line, they what? Comfort me. His correction, when it happens in your life, is a supernaturally ordained chance for you to have a moment of honor. In that way, think about it this way, his correction is not for punishment, it is actually for your preservation. Because he loves those who he corrects. His correction is always a blessing that is designed to bring us back into covenant with him when we have strayed. Discipline does not equal wrath. His correction is comforting evidence of his commitment to perfecting us for the day of the Lord. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until when? The day of salvation. That's what I and that defeat there would become for Joshua and Israel. That's what God's correction is for you, for us. God's correction is an act of love. It's an act of guidance. It's an act of protection that reflects his deep, enduring presence and commitment to him or to to his people and to you specifically. And through the Holy Spirit, through God's Spirit who, who was sent to us, these corrections provide pivotal moments in your life for change that, get this, otherwise would never take place. If you're never corrected, you're going to be the same scoundrel you were decades ago. Amen, Dr. Sutton? Amen. (laughs) Our natural tendency, though, is to deny, ignore, and diminish these moments. Try to manage them to keep them as simple and as, as, as least imposing as possible rather than the actual response, which would be inspired by the Holy Spirit, which includes vulnerability confession, and teachability. Knowing God's correction is an expression of his love, what's best for us? How should we respond to these moments? How do we maximize these blessings from our loving Father? I'll tell you how. With transparency, humility, and repentance, and we'll see this next week, 24 and 25. Therefore, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Then say, consider how to get better on your own. You know, the scripture doesn't really teach self-help. It teaches community help. That's what it teaches. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. maximizing these moments of God's expression of love through correction, it starts with understanding that God's correction is not something to be processed in isolation. His correction should be processed in community, providing us a chance to fulfill the command that we see given right here in Hebrews, to encourage one another to good works. You know what isolation is? Isolation is what we do when we feel shame. When we want to feel sorry for ourselves or blame God, that's what Joshua was doing. 
when God said, get off the ground, you little baby. He didn't say it that way. That's the King Joey version. I just put that in. Here's the thing. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has designed his redeemed to be always interconnected with one another by his spirit. This includes those moments he offers correction. And as a community, we understand that the gospel sets us free from the burden of hiding sin. We learned that story last week with Rahab. <clears throat> that's why at Grace Life, particularly now I'm talking to you, Grace Life family. That's why at Grace Life, we strive to make vulnerability and affectionate accountability things that we celebrate and encourage. Those things, that vulnerability and affectionate accountability, those things allow us to learn how to love one another relentlessly. You might have seen that on the back of some people's shirts lately. It's what we call around here living the grace life. So what is the best way to start? Are you facing some correction? If not, I promise you, you will soon. What are the first steps in processing God's correction together in community? Look at that one. Bring that one up. All right, got it, got it. Here we go. Therefore, confess your sins. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now you say amen to the right power part, but you say amen to the confess your sins to one another part. That's the harder one, right? <laughs> Humanly speaking, do we naturally desire to confess our faults to one another? Humanly speaking, do we see vulnerability as a sign of spiritual strength? See, I will tell you, creating... And we've been working on it now for a little, uh, a little over seven years now at Grace Life. Creating a culture of vulnerability and relentless love does not happen naturally. <clears throat> it requires constant supernatural intervention from a loving father who corrects those he cherishes. Discerning God's loving correction requires spiritual wisdom. <clears throat> responding to correction with vulnerability and repentance, you know what it requires from you? It requires courage. It requires trust of those in your church family. It requires humility and our willingness to support each other as we follow our Jesus wherever he goes into the land that he has promised. So how can Grace Life as a church continue to grow into a safe place and by the way, when I say safe place, I mean a much different type than the world might try to say a safe place. How can Grace Life become a safe place where we are willing to take our sins to the cross in search of real transformation that starts with confession to God and to one another? How can we become a safe place where vulnerability and intimate accountability and affectionate accountability are something that thrive? How can we do that? I'll tell you how, by realizing together in community, God's loving correction is a blessing and a, vital of, and a vital expression of his presence and his love and protection. Being willing to receive God's correction with a vulnerable, loving community, listen carefully, you being willing to receive God's correction 
with a vulnerable, loving community around you proves something. It proves you're one of God's children. If you're not willing to do that, you might need to do some introspection. Internalizing these truths about God's correction will free you to cherish these moments rather than dread or even, as some of us do, resent them. So instead of seeing God's correction as judgment or rejection, how about we as community strive to receive them for what they are? Expressions of the Father's presence and love.